Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I I want to start the show by admitting something. I still, even though I've been involved in political journalism for way too many years, I still get excited as Election Day approaches. I mean, I am really looking forward to the fact that we're already in early voting, of course, and only two weeks away from Election Day in uh, one of the most consequential midterm elections we're likely to see for decades and decades. Um, So uh, excuse me if today on the show I have a little more energy than usual, but I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have with our panelists uh, today. And that starts with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who joins me on the Tuesday shows. Um, Tamar, I know you're not covering the campaigns as you did when you were a congressional reporter for the AJC in Washington, um, but come on. It's the election is coming up tomorrow. I know it's so exciting. You spend all these years and months and reading about everyone keeping track of the polls, who's up, who's down, the issues that voters care about. And it's so exciting to see the final results, what resonated with folks, how the political tides have impacted voters here on the ground. And the early number uh, the early voting numbers have been truly astonishing. So it goes to show that there's real energy in Georgia this year. Yeah, just a quick mention, uh, we, we pay a lot of attention, as many people do, to Ryan Anderson's website, Georgia Votes. Um, he reports this morning that so far, 986,597 people have voted either in in-person early voting or have had absentee uh, ballots accepted, 55% higher than the number at this time in uh, 2018. Chauncey Alcorn, who uh, is with Capital B, a reporter with Capital B, is paying close attention to the election. Uh, Chauncey, you've been uh, uh, focused on candidates, of course, in the Georgia race. And Capital B, as I think many people know, is a, an online uh, news organization devoted to uh, elevating the views and the concerns of uh, the black community here and across the country. Yeah, we've been keeping a close eye on the early numbers. I've, I've been uh, in close contact with some of the voter rights groups who are doing GOTV work on the ground. Uh, they've been celebrating the early returns, showing um, an uptick in African-American turnout, uh, which is a big part of what they do. Um, and uh, I, I expect, you know, going into the uh, final days of the election, that that will maintain. This is this has been um, put Georgia at the center of political discourse in the country. It's uh, a lot of attention on this race, and certainly the folks who are uh, Democratic operatives in particular have been focused on getting folks to vote out early. So it makes sense that the numbers are up in this high. Chauncey, I just want to quickly mention, although it doesn't relate to a Georgia election, um, I want to mention a story that I read on Capital B that startled me this week. A story which reports that essentially slavery is on the November ballot in five states 
whose constitutions allow for forced labor of people convicted of a crime. I mean, it, and it goes on to point out that although the 13th Amendment ended slavery, there's an exception in the 13th Amendment, um, except as a punishment for crime. Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont, the story reports, still have that on the books in those states, and they're now on the ballot um, way too long after they should have been eliminated. That that story really uh, struck me, Chauncey, as powerful and and, uh, distressing. Yeah, I believe that was my colleague, Christina Correga, Capital B National, who worked on that report. Um, but yeah, that we, as you pointed out, the 13th Amendment, uh, one of the, uh, Ava DuVernay did a, a documentary for Netflix uh, a few years mm-hmm. ago on the 13th, which basically um, points out that, yeah, prison labor is, is basically, you know, still illegal to have people work with um, for either low, extremely low or no wages. And uh there are um, several states where this is still practice, and people just tend to not have as much sympathy or not as much knowledge about how the system works. And uh, they're trying to, of course, and uh, there are folks working to try to get that fixed in, in these areas. So it's a great story. Well, it, it, it's well worth a read for everybody out there. Audrey Haynes is back with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the head of the Applied Politics program at UGA, which trains students for careers in politics. Audrey, uh, your class schedule has kept us from having you on the show for a while, and we are really glad you're back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I'm excited about elections, too, because as soon as they're over, I'll have more students in class. (laughs) They're all working. They're all working on campaigns. In the is that right? In the applied, the applied politics program has put put them in positions in various campaigns. Well, you know, we actually do have students in internships and people who actually have graduated from the program who work in multiple campaigns. But I'm really, um, you know, riffing on the students who are volunteering for campaigns, and we have a lot oh, of them. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one one group actually got Senator Warnock to come to campus and give a talk at the chapel because we have a dogs for Warnock. We have dogs for camp. We have everybody and everything going on. There's there's a lot of political activism going on. And everyone who talks about students being apathetic or not engaging haven't been to this campus. Well, see, I'm glad you pointed that out because we have on a couple of shows pointed out that um, the early voting totals, the demographics show that uh, 18 to 29 year olds are voting at a very, very low rate in early voting, only like five plus percent. So I'm glad to hear that there's activism on your campus. We're joined for the first time today by Robin Morris, professor of history at Agnes Scott College. It's really a pleasure to have you here, Robin. And and as I introduce you, I want to point out that you are the author of a book called Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, Gender, Georgia, and the Growth of the New Right, which is, um, I haven't had a chance to read it all, but it's a fascinating look at uh, women in politics. Tell us what you went into that book hoping uh, to uh, be able to uh, uh, prove. Well, I started it by trying to figure out why the South opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. And then once I got into the research, 
I realized that women had been doing so much of the work for political realignment to bring the Republican Party to Georgia, um, that the men were all attached to the Democratic Party. Um, so they weren't able to do that kind of uh, endorsement of Barry Goldwater or Bo Calloway. But the women were doing that work because they didn't have that same attachment. So I ended up finding this decades-long um, development of the grassroots work of women in the in conservative well, movements in Georgia. Well, it strikes me as particularly pertinent today as we look yeah. at women as poten- as potential swing voters, maybe the key to uh, whether Democrats will be able to win some of the big races in the state or not. And we'll talk a little bit about that as the show moves on. But Tamara, I want to start today uh, by looking at your a beat that you have really established for yourself, and that's you, you've uh, reported a lot. You've done a lot of the first stories on what's going on with Fonnie Willis's special grand jury investigating the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And of course, we have two stories that relate to that today. Uh, The first one is, and just to set it up, Lindsey Graham has been fighting tooth and nail to not have to testify in front of the special grand jury. He's been subpoenaed. He's gone through several court hearings on this. Most recently, a federal appeals court, the 11th Circuit Court, a three-judge panel, said, no, no, Senator, you do have to testify uh, regardless of the speech or debate uh, clause, uh, which says that uh, that members of Congress don't, don't have to testify about issues that involve their work. But there are aspects of uh, your involvement in the uh, Trump effort to overturn the election, potentially, that you do have to talk about. All right. So at that point, we thought he was going to have to testify. He's gone to the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas said, we're putting a stay on your requirement to testify. It sounded very dramatic when it first was reported yesterday that Clarence Thomas stopped this testimony. What's really going on tomorrow? <laughs> well, it's a pretty pro forma move, I'm sorry to say. I mean, a lot of people, I think, freaked out when they saw Clarence Thomas and Lindsey Graham in a in a headline related to testifying. And I think people really jump to conclusions and it goes to show, I think, how freaked out a lot of progressives are about the Supreme Court right now and, and kind of um, the, the hit that the Supreme Court has taken in terms of public opinion. But this was a very pro forma move. It's very common for, for court to stay, lower court you know, uh, rulings so they can take a bite at the apple. So the Supreme Court has directed the Fulton DA's office. Why don't you respond to Lindsey Graham's, um, you know, initial uh, filing? So so the DA's office has until Thursday to do that. We're expecting the Supreme Court to take this up themselves in the um, weeks and months ahead. And so there's a lot more to come on this. I just think people saw Clarence Thomas and, you know, Lindsey Graham doesn't have to come testify. But no, all of this will be decided in the future. They're just pumping the brakes so that these legal, uh, you know, filings can come in. Um, Audrey, uh, it does say something about the political climate today. And perhaps um, the fact that the Supreme Court has opened itself up to people immediately jumping to conclusions that there that this uh, 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 administrative stay was politically motivated. 
You're, don't mute yourself today. I, I'm just slow. <laughs> I am just slow because, as usual, I was up until 2 a.m., but I still would not give up the t- chance to be here. Um, I would, you know, interestingly enough, you talk about this. We, people on both sides, we just had a conversation about this the other day um, among some of my peers, is that, you know, polarization has gotten so embedded and so extreme that no matter what side you're on, you're projecting um, what your expectations are. There's not really a chance to actually think and interpret what's going on or getting, you know, you don't take the time to get the background information and you're selectively also perceiving things. And we tend as human beings, in my, my class in propaganda, we tend as human beings to hear the negative. You know, it's amplified. Kind of what we want to hear, we hear. So if you've developed that anticipation that there is a a relationship between partisanship and, and the judicial decision-making, which is not a good thing in a sense, uh, in this case, then you're going to see it. You you see what you want to see, and that's how we resolve some of our cognitive dissonance. Chauncey? Yeah, I was going to say the, the none of this has helped. Uh, this might be pro forma, but it certainly isn't helped by the fact that uh, Mr. Uh, uh, the Justice Thomas's wife is so heavily involved in the uh, accusations of you know coercion and working to uh, help organize the uh, January 6th insurrection. So, uh, folks, there are some I saw the traffic on Twitter in the legal community was saying that this was a violation of um, some of the. Uh, uh, there's some statute that basically says that he has to recuse himself in this case. So I think that that, you know, any any involvement, any ruling where you're going to have Clarence Thomas because of his wife's involvement um, as, um, as it relates to the uh, insurrection hearing is going to ruffle feathers um, uh, for people in particular. Uh, Robin, let me let me throw something at you and ask you to respond to it if I can. Um, I it, it strikes me that given that all of the uh, concern that we've heard from various justices on the court that they are upset that they're being called political in nature, and especially because Chief Justice Roberts has tried to pull back from that, there's a certain extent to which Thomas's even putting this stay in place, this administrative stay, which would then mean the rest of the court very well may have to weigh in, is the last thing the Supreme Court needs to engage in right now. They could have just rejected this out of hand and not gotten themselves into what people are going to see as a political uh, matter. Yeah, they, they could have done that. Um, it's, I, think, I think Chauncey had a great point that all of this is bringing uh, the questions of Jenny Thomas up. So, you know, maybe we should have had uh, Clarence Thomas recuse himself from anything. He probably, yeah. he definitely should have should have done that. Yeah. I, and, you know, I think if Robert wants to appear non-political, he should be encouraging that sort of behavior, that sort of decision. Yeah, but apparently Chief Justice Roberts doesn't have a whole lot of control uh, over Justice Thomas these days. Tomorrow. I mean, one one thing I learned as I was reading about what happened yesterday is that I didn't realize that the justices kind of carve out between all the different appeals courts. So Clarence Thomas mm. handles issues that come out of the 11th Circuit, which is where Atlanta, where the, the Georgia court is. So it's not like 
you know, it was Clarence Thomas kind of coming in and saying, I'm going to take this. Like, no, this is literally kind of the way that the, the pipeline works. But because this has become such a, a giant emotional kind of political issue, everyone, just like Audrey said, is going to draw the conclusions that they want. I do think it's important to note kind of taking a, a step back here that this is an important case. I mean, obviously for Georgia and for the special grand jury, but this is an important case when it comes to setting the boundaries of the speech or debate clause, which is in the constitution. Um, you know, it says basically members of Congress can't be questioned about things that they might be doing on the floor of the Capitol, stuff they might be doing in their committee hearings, but there's definitely some gray areas. You know, Lindsey Graham is basically saying he can't be questioned about anything because anything, even if it was outside of those specific lanes, it informs stuff that that might turn into legislation later. And so it's going to be important in sort of setting a precedent in terms of what members of Congress can or cannot be questioned about. And I think that's important to consider when we think about why the Supreme Court is interested in this particular case. Audrey? I was just going to add, to that, especially for some of the originalists in the um on the court, I mean, to me, in my reading, and I'm not a congressional, I mean, a constitutional scholar by any means, but it is so clear to me that they're talking about when you give a speech or when you give a debate or when you are expressing ideas about legislative ideas. It has nothing to do with attempting to influence outcomes of elections or steer things in a particular way. That is outside of the boundaries of what is protected, in my view. Well, actually, the three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit said just that. Uh, they said there are certain things that are protected, but they also said that if, if um, uh, someone like a Senator Graham was uh, involved in, ever, in any effort to uh, influence the outcome of Georgia's election, did he have certain communications with uh, people in the Trump uh, campaign about this. Those were perfectly legitimate questions uh, to ask. So your point is well taken. And the 11th Circuit, at least that three-judge panel, would agree with you, Audrey Haynes. Um, let's, one quick thing, Tamar, before we move on to election news. Uh, the other interesting story that you filed today for the AJC uh, points out something we already kind of understood might be happening, but you really make it more specific. Um, and that is that Fannie Willis's special grand jury is reaping the benefits of testimony that the January 6th committee has uncovered and evidence they've uncovered. And it's particularly important because there are things that it's unlikely Fannie Willis could never have found out if not for the January 6th committee, right? Or it might have taken her years, time that she does not have. Um, they've been able to not only give us names of, of witnesses that most of us have never heard of. No one knew who Cassidy Hutchison was outside of a very small circles um, until the January 6th committee really cracked that open. And now CNN's <coughs> reporting that, that Cassidy Hutchinson is cooperating with Fulton Grand Jurors. Um, they've been able to get evidence from the Justice Department that it might have taken Bonnie Willis years to get, or maybe she would have never gotten. It's really helped her with that. But specifically, all of this evidence has helped speak to the state of mind of Donald Trump and his top advisors as they were trying to get Georgia to overturn its election results. And all of that is important because you have to establish criminal intent if you're going to get criminal charges to stick. Um, to be able to convince a jury that beyond a reasonable doubt that these folks knew better than what they were doing if they were committing a crime. And so that can be very squishy. And it, you know, there, there might have been more kind of plausible deniability. But I think 
a, a lot of the legal sources I spoke to for this story mentioned, especially in this last hearing of the committee, evidence from folks like uh, Mark Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Cassidy Hutchison, um, saying that they had conversations with Trump after the election in which he privately acknowledged that he lost. But still in public, he was saying, no, 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 we won. There was fraud. There was fraud. It paints a picture that maybe Trump knew that he was promoting falsehoods and still did it anyway. So that's very oh. valuable should the DA want to press charges. Okay, um, one more item before we move on to the election news that is important to us these days um, is um, we know that uh, uh, Robert McBurney, judge in, in Fulton County Court, uh, has uh, now heard the first day of testimony in the effort by uh, pro-choice groups to uh, block the Georgia abortion law. There's been one day of testimony, a second day today. McBurney, by the way, has already said he will not rule on this until after the election uh, it takes place. Robin, uh, the arguments yesterday in court were pretty basic. Um, the, um, uh, the plaintiffs in this case, the pro-choice groups say that Georgia state constitution has a strong right to privacy uh, provision, and that right to privacy, which was the basis on which the U.S. Supreme Court in the U.S. Constitution ruled that abortion was legal, uh, that the the uh, privacy clause in the state constitution is so strong that it should uh, immediately block the abortion law from moving forward, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's important to remember that in addition to Roe v. Wade, there was the case Doe versus Bolton coming out of Georgia. And this, um, it, sorry, um, and we're kind of getting back into that where women had to prove um, that they were raped. Um, and, you know, this, this law requires women to file a report, which we know women are not likely to do after a rape, especially in those first six weeks of, of the trauma. And, you know, or having to get then a three-judge, a three-doctor panel to approve that they um, had medical necessity. So we're really going back to where uh, this, this controversy all began in the 1970s uh, in Georgia. So it'll be interesting to see how this right to privacy um, plays out in the courts. Um, we'll, we'll see what yeah. happens after the election, hey, I guess. Chauncey, here's another fascinating aspect of this case. Um, remember that when Georgia passed this uh, so-called heartbeat abortion law, they also enshrined personhood yeah. for an embryo. And the solicitor general representing the state in this case um, Stephen Petrani, he argued that a pregnant woman no longer has a right to privacy because upon conception and under Georgia law, an embryo is already a distinct person. So the right to privacy only extends so far as you're not affecting anyone else. Hence, the personhood part of the law uh, is their argument for why this the privacy statute a uh, uh, provision doesn't apply? Yeah, I spoke um, earlier this summer to some of the uh, attorneys for the uh, Georgia NAACP about this case as they were pre uh, preparing to file it in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, and they talked about the personhood aspect of the Dobbs case, and uh, that that would pot potentially create some problems um, in this privacy ruling. I think the main thing. Uh, I mean, their biggest fear, obviously, is, as uh, some of the others have pointed out, 
um, going back to a point where women um, in Georgia, uh, it wasn't that long ago. I actually, um, while I was out um, on the campaign trail or uh, the doing, uh, well, not doing, but covering uh, GOPV work with uh, Black Voters Matter, I spoke to a, a woman who um, talked about why she cared about the abortion issue and why, um, you know, a woman's bodily autonomy mattered to her. You know, it was uh, going back into the uh, early 2000s, she had to get her husband's permission um, because of a state law in Georgia to have uh, a hysterectomy that the doctor said that she needed, and her husband wouldn't sign off on it. Um, and it was actually a huge problem for her. She had all kinds of medical complications, um, you know, menstrual cycles in public, and he only signed off on it later. I, I, it was, I was insane. I was just like, what? This, what century are we in? And uh, uh, they ultimately were, uh, some of the ladies probably be happy to hear they got divorced later. Um, but um, nonetheless, this is, you know, this is, uh, I think it's politically, it's a big thing for Democrats because this keeps the abortion issue in the news. A lot of the polls have shown that the abortion is, has taken um, a backseat to, you know, inflation and crime and other key issues. It's been a huge driver for the young vote, um, which, as uh, you pointed out earlier, has not been as enthused. So hopefully, I mean, if you're uh, rooting for that side and you uh, believe in abortion rights, you know, this is something that you are encouraged by. Audrey, before we get to a break, uh, even President Biden uh, has acknowledged that abortion, which seemed to be such an inflaming issue right after the road decision by the Supreme Court, seems to have faded. And the other day he encouraged Democrats and women particularly get out there and vote. This is still a big issue. But as Chauncey uh, points out, it really does seem to have faded into the background. The question is, is it underneath is it really an issue that we may not be seeing in the polls, but that really is going to matter when people actually cast their ballots? I, you know, I can only say that from speaking to some people and looking at, you know, some of the research that's out there, I think that it may. I honestly do, because um, and, and I would argue that, you know, perhaps at this point in time, it doesn't seem very prevalent and it it may or may not have. Uh, an extreme impact on this election. But the fact that it's such bad policy, the fact that, you know, it is driving politics in many ways for Republicans, um, and the fact that there are going to be so many unintended consequences, especially from things like this really undefined personhood, you know, I mean, what are these embryos going to be doing as people in the future that are going to impact, you know, um, how the states react to them. So I think there are lots of questions that there are going to emerge. And if it doesn't have an impact at this point, it is going to have an impact later. And it's going to be a significant one and probably a very bad one for Republicans. Aud Audrey Haynes gets the last word in the first segment of Political Rewind. We're going to take a break now and come back. We've got election news, of course, to talk about. We'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Welcome back to Political Rewind. A couple of quick notes before I reintroduce the panel. Number one, tomorrow's Political Rewind newsletter uh, day. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and uh, you will get it in your inbox every Wednesday, sometime in the mid-afternoon or so, and I hope you'll join us there. Another very quick note. Um, Next Thursday night, November 3rd, the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival will be underway. And I'm going to be doing a program with uh, John Meacham. Uh, You know Meacham, of course, is a Pulitzer Prize winner for uh, his uh, writing, wrote a brilliant biography of Andrew Jackson, among other things. He's got a brand new book called And There Was Light. It's about Abraham Lincoln and how Abraham Lincoln dealt with the issue of slavery and some of the moral codes that guided Abraham Lincoln, with me, which Meacham would suggest, no longer seem to apply to our politics today. So if you're interested in coming to that, I'm told there are still some tickets. Just search for the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival, and you'll very easily find a place where you can buy tickets to come to see that event. All right. Robin Morris, professor of history at Agnes Scott College, joins us for the first time today. Chauncey Elkhorn, reporter at Capital B, is back. Audrey Haynes of the University of Georgia. And Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC. Tamar, I want to talk about an event that's taking place down in Savannah today because I think it speaks to the power of incumbency two weeks before an election. They're going to break ground or the mega plant that Hyundai is building down there. Um, and although there's been a little bit of controversy around it because uh, the, the, the new uh, uh, major piece of legislation passed by the Biden administration uh, took away tax credits uh, from companies that don't build at least a part of their electric vehicles in the United States, um, it, it's moving forward. And we're going to see Governor Kemp and Raphael Warnock on the same stage. John Ossoff will be there as well. And it occurs to me that all of them feel they've had a part, a share in, in working on getting this plant there. But it also tells me about how important incumbency is as an election approaches. Uh, Tersha Walker's not going to be there, obviously. Uh, and unfortunately for her, Stacey Abrams isn't there. And this is a huge economic development uh, plant. A couple points on that. First of all, politicians love ribbon cuttings and any opportunity you can to tell <laughs> the work that, that you have done and get your photo taken um, obviously tends to attract a, a lot of folks. And obviously, this is a massive, massive deal. $5.5 billion dollars the largest economic development project in the state's history. It's no wonder that elected officials are lining up to be there to be in that photo. And you're absolutely right, Bill, the power of incumbency. There are so many large companies that operate that in in a state that want to shower elected officials, no matter what party, uh, with campaign donations, just so they can have a friend in Washington or in Atlanta whenever they may need it. Um, this is a bipartisan thing. It does not matter who's in power. And sometimes it'll get companies or it'll get, you know, uh, officials in trouble. But it is very much a part of our campaign finance system as it is. And I don't expect that to change anytime soon. If it were a Democratic governor and Republican senators, you would still see that giving. It almost doesn't matter. Chauncey, it also strikes me that it could symbolize what we're seeing, we think, in some of the polling, 
split ticket voting between voters who are going to elect or going to vote for Brian Kemp on one hand, but may very well vote for Raphael Warnock, not Herschel Walker on the other. So there will be Warnock and Kemp on the same uh, stage. And that goes back to, as, you, as uh, Tamar mentioned, the uh, power of incumbency. I know that uh, also um, the economy is something that has uh, been very much at the forefront of the minds of voters. Uh, this election cycle cited as one of, the, one of, if not the top issue in, in a lot of polling. So any, any opportunity that they can show, especially in uh, uh, southern Georgia, um, you know, groundbreaking and showing, um, bringing employers into the state is going to be uh, a benefit to any um, Democrat or Republican. Um, Robin, this, is, this really has been an interesting phenomenon to watch in the polls. We'll see if it plays out on Election Day. Um, but there are Republicans who uh, anecdotally have told reporters they think Brian Kemp has done a great job. They're kind of uncomfortable with Herschel Walker. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as you were talking about the power of incumbency, I was thinking that it's an interesting election because there's not really coattails. Everyone's kind of got the like a short bolero jacket without carrying anyone <laughs> along with them, right? Um, so even in at the Spellhouse uh, celebrations, you saw Stacey Abrams in one place and and uh, Warnock in one place and not appearing together. Um, and I, I think, yeah, we are seeing a lot of that split ticket. It's interesting that Herschel Walker is up in North Georgia right now with Marjorie Taylor Greene trying to shore up that very conservative district um, and, you know, really trying to, to reach out and grab those Kemp voters back. So uh, I, I think we are going to see a very interesting split ticket election this time around. Or we're going to be very surprised on election night, hopefully before yeah. bedtime. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Audrey, Audrey, get unmute your phone, Audrey. You know what? I'm going to get a T-shirt printed that says, Audrey, unmute your phone. Okay, so. You know, um, you know, Audrey, I'm going to tell you something on air because it'll be a good thing for you to know. Chase McGee is in our control room. He will mute and unmute microphones, phones as needed. You don't have oh. to bother. <laughs> well, I could have used that information a while ago. That's really, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think you were enjoying having the comic relief on the show for um, Audrey and her mute button for a while. But anyway, everyone's really already said all of the, the, the correct interpretations of that. You know, the power of incumbency, you know, Kemp and Warnock uh, both benefit from this uh, nice um, photo op and the opportunity to shake hands and show that they've done something for the state. Chauncey, let's talk a bit about uh, Abrams and her challenges right now. Um, we've seen any number of polls that, um, and I always say, polls are a snapshot of a moment. They don't predict what the outcome will be on Election Day. Nevertheless, um, if you take a look at, at, at a group of polls, the trends are that Brian Kemp is leading this race, in some cases perhaps by as much as double digits. What are you seeing out there in the community about how Stacey Abrams is performing in this race. Why does it appear that maybe she is vulnerable, especially among 
black voters, or is that not the case? So this has uh, been the million-dollar question for like the last couple of months. Um, the uh, main answer that I've gotten, and I interviewed Ms. Abrams a few weeks ago, as you know, um, and she makes a very good point, um, which is that if you look at her poll numbers um, with African Americans going back um, in the 2018 election cycle, they weren't much better than they are now. But she still, at the end, ended up getting 93 percent of the black vote, she, which, of course, she didn't win that race. But that's, a, that's about where a Democrat needs to be in a statewide election to be in a position to win a race, which almost that race almost went to a runoff. Um, I also talked to uh, Stanford Bishop a few weeks back, and he said something similar, which is basically that some of the polls that, in their estimation and the, and the campaign's estimation don't always catch uh, black voters that um, um, vote Democrat that may not, for whatever reason, whether they, uh, the pollsters are using landlines or cell phones and they're not getting certain folks who don't have uh, those phones or people who are rural areas. Um, that are not getting polled. Um, the, uh, some of the agency polls, uh, they say, have, you know, um, and I've talked to some of the uh, folks at the University of Georgia who administer those polls who say that they do believe conservative and they're not necessarily getting everyone. Whereas, you know, if you're a black conservative, um, you are more likely to be polled. So, that, in other words, there, it's, uh, it skews in their estimation um, to uh, the conservatives. So, as, again, I, the best illustration is, of that was the 2018 cycle, where she got 93%. I remember there was a lot of going back and forth in the 2016 election cycle, uh, or post-2016, post I should say, over Donald Trump's black support. And there was some polls that even NAACP had a poll that showed Trump had like uh, plus 20% support um, from black um, um, Americans. He ended up getting about what every Republican gets, which is around... 10% of the black vote. So there's, it's, a, it's really tough sometimes to, um, you know, get a beat on some of these things um, as it relates to the black vote. Um, and what we've seen so far this cycle has shown, in spite of all the polls, black people are voting at, at record rates um, for a midterm election cycle. So there's evidence to support both arguments. I, I don't really know what we're going to see. I really, uh, me personally, I think that the uh, Voter eligibility challenges are going to really um, be a key in this race. Um, obviously, uh, we have the voterless maintenance policy in addition to the folks who have been challenged at the uh, county level. Um, and that might um, um, push the tide one way or the other. But ultimately, you've, you've got Democrats now. You've got Obama coming here. You've got Oprah and everybody else, um, you know, uh, giving um, Ms. Edmonds a platform and everywhere else. And generally speaking, with all the attention on this race, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to, it's, it's highly likely there'll be a lot of people who will turn out that maybe would not have in another cycle. Uh, Tomorrow, we can understand why the Abrams campaign would look at polling and look at uh, who is being polled and argue sometimes with uh, the sample. And it is certainly true. We've talked about it on this show um, with all due respect to Audrey Haynes at the University of Georgia and to uh, the AJC and to our organization, which participated in one of these polls, there is no question that the that the Georgia poll did oversample conservative voters um, in in a couple of polls. So you can understand why the Abrams people would want to argue that um, people should ignore the polls and just get out and vote uh, tomorrow. I mean, at the same time, this is you know you, you need to look at trends across polls. 
And the trends yes. have shown that, you know, almost all of them, Kemp is leading five, eight, ten points. I mean, again, things can change. We don't know what's going to be motivating voters on the particular day they might show up in early voting. And certainly it would work to Abrams' advantage to try and convince voters, yeah, like, you know, this is, we're, we're not down yet. You know, we're not out yet. Come out and support us because I think they're worried people might stay, ho- stay home if they think that Abrams has no chance. Uh, but but it's worth looking, like I said, across polls. And, and we have consistently seen a trend where where she's been down five to ten points. And certainly that's something where yeah. you're seeing the Kemp camp be much more aggressive when it comes to courting voters that wouldn't traditionally be in their lane. I think that's right. And I think that if the polls on average are showing that gap, that it's probably likely, uh, uh, Audrey, that the internal polls of the Abrams campaign uh, is looking are looking at uh, show that they're uh, running uh, behind. That that may be the case. Um, kudos to me and not messing up my mute button. But um, as an aside, <laughs> um, but I would say that you know they have their own internal polls and a lot of them are tracking polls. And you know my sense right now is that you know. Um, Voters are talked about as being very inelastic right now because, you know, people have chosen their camp. And really, this is a mobilization race. She knows exactly how many white voters are going to turn up. And her one box of potential voters that are out there that could raise her vote are a lot of um, voters of color who have not participated but have but have gotten registered, and that is a big part of it. And then, you know, there are the people on the margins, you know, weak partisans. You know, Kemp is doing well. He's running a really tight campaign. If you know some of the people who are working for him, they wake up in the morning, they look at the tracking polls, they um, focus their message, they try not to make any gaffes. It's a very controlled operation. Um, the Abrams campaign is bigger. There's a, a lot more activity going on. And it really is about mobilization. She has adjusted her message at times. I think a lot of Democrats right now are adjusting their message. You know, part of it going back to our um, discussion about Roe, that's not on people's minds. But when they went to Walmart and they bought their usual groceries, it was $200. You know, that yeah. was what I experienced yeah. yesterday. So I think that we're going to see some adjustment. And... A lot of people say they haven't really felt like the campaign's been going on. Well, now they do, because look at all those ads that are out there. They're starting to feel it. Campaigns start spending the last bit of money they have at the end, and everyone's going to be inundated and thinking about the campaign. I I think they're getting disgusted by all the ads they're seeing on the air right now. Robin, um, your book. Your book, Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, tracks the development of women in Georgia as conservative forces. But, of course, now uh, the Abrams campaign and the Raphael Warnock campaign and other Democrats on uh, the down ballot uh, 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 are all hoping that it is women who will turn their way. Yeah, uh, that's a big hope for them, because if you look historically, and, and my book is also really focusing on white conservative women. Um, there are yes. um, black conservative groups, but white conservative women have been some of the strongest voters. I think last last election, they turned out at 75 percent for Kemp. So, you know, just focusing on abortion is probably not likely to, to get that through. I think it is going to be economics. Um, 
And they could actually learn from some of the tactics women used in my book to, to bring attention to, um, to the inflation in the grocery store. Women pay a lot of close attention to inflation because they are the, they are the biggest ones who buy for the family. Robin Morris, plug in sales of her book here on Political <laughs> Rewind. Good for you, Robin. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment. Tamar Hellerman, Politico broke a pretty significant story uh, the other day that I want to talk about for a couple of minutes. They reported, we know that Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight, has, uh, ever since the 2018 election, had a case in court um, uh, uh, claiming uh, that Georgia's laws and rules about voting have suppressed uh, votes that quite uh, likely might have gone to Abrams and other minority candidates. Um, We know that Judge Steve Jones, finally, at one of the longest-running cases that any of us have ever seen, finally just recently said that there was very little merit to the uh, case. He said Georgia election laws aren't perfect, but they are basically uh, done correctly. And Politico story reports that the Abrams organization Fair Fight spent $25 million fighting this case over the years, and that the biggest beneficiary of this was Allegra Lawrence Hardy, who is, uh, whose, whose law firm was involved in this case, and she is uh, uh, Abrams' campaign chair. Her firm uh, got $9 million out of this. Now, I don't think this is a big election issue, but it is worth spending a couple of minutes on. It's staggering. No other, they talked to election experts at Politico, voter suppression experts who said, when you get above eight to $10 million, you're getting into outrageous territory. Yeah, sure. I mean, $25 million over two years on legal fees. This was the organization that Abrams started kind of coming out of her 2018 race. It, it helped raise her profile even more as a voting rights advocate. It made her a national celebrity, a fundraising juggernaut. But as you mentioned, that, that case that came out of it um, has pretty much kind of deflated. But obviously, that's a, a staggering amount of money to spend on on lawyers and somebody who she's, she's so close with. Technically, it looks like it's legal under our system, but there's, there's our ethics experts posted or uh, quoted in this story, some of whom say that obviously it, it doesn't exactly smell good either. Um, so obviously not the kind of story that I think the Abrams folks want so close to an election, but I think it might be the sort of thing that might be a little bit too in the weeds for your average voter. I, I think that might be true. All right, Audrey, so we can talk about this for a couple more minutes, but let's add another money story to this. Uh, the AJC reported recently that uh, a health insurance uh, company, a giant company, Centene Corporation, which was caught overbilling for Medicaid patients, has had to settle $485 million with states over their bill, uh, billing allegations that they charged too much to these uh, states. Georgia has the right to ask for a settlement as well. But Santine is a big contributor to the campaigns of Brian Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr. And the AJC reports that Georgia has not 
tried to get involved in this settlement. Right. So a couple of things. Centene is huge. They're a really big company. They have a lot of subsidiaries out there. They basically have a history of, you know, like many large companies being sued and having um, to pay various settlements. In this case in particular, and and anyone correct me if I'm wrong, I think that, you know, they, they had found um, someone internally maybe had found the error and had, you know, started looking at this. So there is the opportunity for Georgia to be involved if they, too, um, found that, that the subsidiary had been inflating um, the, the costs that were involved, especially in Medicaid. And Chris Carr has said um, that he would. Um, one of the things that we should point out is that this company is given money to a lot of people, like a lot of big companies do. They tend to give money, more money to people who are incumbents. Um, and, but they also gave money to um, Stacey Abrams. Jen Jordan is one of the people that they gave money to. Um, so, you know what, the, uh, until we see, like, Chris Carr not going after them with that opportunity, he says he will and do everything that he's supposed to do, it's hard to say this, will, this is, um, you know, a, a negative story yet. I think, Chauncey, the point of both of these stories is, as Tamar says, they may be worth consideration, and as journalists, we need to look into these things, but they're not likely to change the outcome of the election. But they do tell us something about money in in politics, and uh, and it's worth looking at. Yeah, I mean, as it relates to the um, uh, fair fight story from Politico, this is something I've gotten this question a lot because I've I've worked closely with a lot of these groups as far as uh, you know um, doing reports on what their voter engagement work, and um, they maintain that they are nonpartisan. I have met actual people who work for these groups who. Um, have political views that you wouldn't expect. So um, certainly um, the Ms. Abrams founding um, Fair Fight and then um, uh, New Georgia Project and some of the other groups that she's worked with, um, you know, people have questioned the line of that, but, uh, you know, they operate and they don't, when I've, I've gone out with them on the, on the trail, they don't tell people necessarily who to vote for. They tell them about the issues and ask them about what they're, you know, the candidates who support the issues that they care about. But uh, it certainly is something that, uh, you know, folks have raised before. Yeah, there's no question that in their work on registering voters, encouraging voters to go to the polls, Fair Fight has been an important organization, which is, I think, separate from this question about the staggering mm-hmm. amount of money they spent uh, defending their charges in this case. We are completely out of time for today's political rewind, I'm sorry to say. Um, I had a lot more that I wanted to talk with this panel about. Uh, some of which we'll get to tomorrow. A lot of you have been asking us if we will please explain the four initiatives, four ballot initiatives that Georgians are seeing. We'll try to get to that uh, tomorrow so that maybe we can give you a better sense of what those four questions are all about. Um, and we'll talk about everything else that happens between now and then in politics in this state. So um, my thanks to uh, Chauncey Alcorn for being here. Audrey Haynes, a pleasure uh, Robin Morris, come back. It was great to have you on for your first appearance on Political Rewind. Tamar Hallerman, I always look forward to Tuesdays when you're my partner on this show. That's it. Out of time for today. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Have you had a flu shot yet? Because if not, you really need to get one and maybe get a booster while you're at it. Take care, everybody. <laughs>